Um, welcome everyone to Big Tent USA. Big Tent USA is a national women-led pro-democracy advocacy organization promoting civic engagement through education and activism. I wanna make sure that you know about our upcoming events. We have some great speakers coming in September. Wednesday, September 14th at 7 p.m., Cecile Richards, who I think needs no introduction, uh, will be joining us. Cecile Richards is a national leader for women's rights and social and economic justice. Richards served as the president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and Planned Parenthood Action Fund is the author of bestseller, Make Trouble. Cianti Stewart-Reed, uh, who is the ED at Fair Fight, is coming to a tent talk on Tuesday, September 20th at 9 a.m. to highlight their grassroots work in Georgia ahead of the midterms. And on Wednesday, September 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, David Pepper, chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, an author of multiple books, including his most recent Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the front lines, will discuss how some state governments have become breeding grounds for anti-democratic politicians and policies and what can be done to stop this trend. Thank you, Kansas, with that <laughs> win yesterday. Uh, we are so honored to have Dan Pfeiffer with us tonight. Dan is a co-host of Pod Save America, one of Barack Obama's longest serving advisors. He was White House Director of Communications under President Obama from 2009 to 2013 and senior advisor to the president from 2013 to 2015. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Yes, We Still Can and Untrumping America and his newest book, Battling the Big Lie. Please put your questions in the chat for Dan um, and welcome Dan to Big Tent USA. I am three fourths of the way through this book. It is tremendous and it is essential read for every American who cares about countering the big lie and saving democracy. So let's get cracking on it. The first thing I wanna ask you is why did you write it? And also as you watched, and I'm, you might tell us this, but the second prong to this is as you watch the big lie unfold, Trump's big lie unfold about the election of 2020, um, what has surprised you the most? Um, and how has this lie sort of morphed and transferred onto America? Sure. So. I had no intention of writing this book. I had written two books in a four-year period uh, after leaving the White House, one in, they came out in 2018 and one that came out in 2020, very fortuitously in, in the middle of February, which was better than the middle of March, but still not great with, with a pandemic coming and shutting down my book tour. I had sort of said two books in four years, that is more than enough book writing for me. And after the election, I was really racking my brain trying to think about and understand how it was possible that Donald Trump came within 40,000 votes in, in, spread across three states of getting reelected, despite everything he had done, everything he had said, how he had mishandled the pandemic, just everything about it. Like, what was it that everyone missed? Like, not just why was the polling wrong, but what, what, were, the, what were the countervailing forces that were pushing against all of the advantages that Joe Biden had going into that election? And as I was doing that and thinking about it and wrestling with it, I was also watching simultaneously this growing belief against all evidence among large portions of the Republican Party that the election had been stolen. And look, this was a close election, but it wasn't any closer. It wasn't that much closer than Donald Trump's win in 2016. It was certainly a lot less close than George W. Bush's win in 2000. Yet, despite the fact that there, no evidence had emerged. Every Republican elected election officials had said no fraud had happened. The votes have been counted, recounted, and then recounted again. Still, despite all of that, 70% of Republicans were telling pollsters that they believed the election had been stolen. And then some of them believed it so passionately that they armed themselves and stormed the Capitol based on this obviously untrue lie with a plan to stop the election that never was possible. And so how did that happen? And I really wanted to explore the power of disinformation and right-wing propaganda and do it from the perspective of someone who has watched it grow over 20 years in politics, who has had to battle it, trying to explain Barack Obama's legitimacy and his birth certificate and all of that. Because I came to the conclusion that 
most Democrats, not just like voters, but elected officials, party officials, political operatives, did not fully understand what we were grappling with, how powerful the right-wing media machine was, how it worked, and then ultimately what we could do to stop it. And I thought that was something that wouldn't translate into newsletters that I write or podcasts I do. And the only form was a book. So I bit the bullet and, and wrote another book. Um, and really, I would say a suboptimal time with uh, signing the book contract while my wife, Hallie, was six months pregnant with our second child in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but ultimately, I was glad uh, I did it because I do think it tells a story that not enough Democrats know. And I've been pleased by the number of people who've been involved in politics for a long time who've read it and felt like they, they learned a lot and they have no ideas about how to fight back. Yeah, that was suboptimal timing on your part, just going to say. But thank you that's for doing it. And please thank Hallie for that's, us, too, for <laughs> saying. That's, okay, I'm still tired from it because I used to I was waking up at 4 a.m. <laughs> and I was waiting until one of, our, one of our two children woke up uh, on a daily basis. You're like, one of them's going to wake up. So yeah. I know it. Yeah. Well, thank you. It is excellent. And it really does sort of tie together a lot of things that I think many of us on this call sort of stew on and we're like, why does that happen? Why does that happen? So you you tie it together really nicely. Um, I do want to um, have you sort of lay, uh, sort of explain for everybody um, about the history, which you do really well in the book, brief history about the right-wing media and you know why it's been built for decades as you rightly point out. And also sort of like how it, who funds this, how it works, and why is it so successful at, at spreading disinformation? Sure, so the history, a lot of people sort of trace the history of the right-wing propaganda machine to the day that Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch decided to start Fox News. And that was obviously an essential day in that story, but the story begins years and years before it, decades before it. It starts in the 1964 campaign where Barry Goldwater, runs the campaign that's explicitly against the press. He, you know, even his campaign press secretary would hand out um, pins to the press that would travel with his campaign, calling them Eastern, uh, Eastern establishment liberals or Eastern elites, depending on the pin or the day. And it became, and the idea, it really cemented this idea that the, the media was biased against conservatives, this idea of liberal media, the way to explain away all conservative failures, including Barry Goldwater's landslide loss to Linda Johnson was liberal bias in the media. And it became a rallying cry for the right. It, be, it became something that sort of every politician would do. And then in Richard Nixon, when he came into office, really began to, he, Richard Nixon had a chip on his shoulder since he lost his campaign in 1960. He had felt uh, ridiculed and dismissed by the press over many things, including a dog he got from a donor. There's a long history of this but began really sort of trying to weaponize government against the media. And so there are two notable moments in the Nixon presidency of which Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News and the Republican and Nixon political consultant was at the center of. The first was right when the press was, was fully turning on the Vietnam War and Nixon's response to it, the Nixon White House began coming up with an idea to have their donors fund a pro-Vietnam War movie documentary they would release as a way to push back against this. And it would be treated, it was pure propaganda, basically written and directed by Nixon and his, Nixon's political aides, but under you know, the guise of objectivity. And then the second thing, which is really becomes the beginning of Fox News, that there was a memo that circulated in the Nixon White House about an idea where the Nixon White House would film local news stories as if they were like sort of exactly like local, local news, but they'd be done by the Nixon White House, by the Nixon reelection campaign. They would take those camp those videos and distribute them to sort of like video press releases to new local news stations all across the country. The uh, this was a, they had an incredibly elaborate plan about how they were going to back in this day and age or satellite and that in order if you were going to get the videotape to a new station you had to drive it there mail it there fly it there so they worked out all the logistics of how, logistics of how they were going to do it this memo did not come to light until 2013 when someone a reporter from slate dug it up in the um bowels of the nixon library and in the, and on the memo which lays out this incredibly detailed propaganda plan 
there's only one person's handwriting on the memo that's found that endorses the idea and says that it has to be done with television because not radio or newspaper because television is for the lazy people. Uh, it does all the work for you. And that person's handwriting is Roger Ailes. He is the person who signs it. And it becomes the foundation for Fox News. It's a realization after the press takes down Nixon that on the right, if they are going to beat the press, they have to be the press. They have to build up their own their own media apparatus. And so it's a two-step process. The part one begins with Goldwater, convince Republican voters not to trust the press. Part two begins with Nixon and it comes to fruition with Fox News, which is to give the press somewhere else to go. Reagan then takes us to the next level when he appoints a bunch of activists to the FCC to take to, to repeal the fairness doctrine, and which what it does is it then leads to the a massive explosion in conservative radio. But it goes from a small handful of conservative radio programs to thousands within a couple of years. That becomes the blueprint in the market, uh, like the proof of concept for Fox News. And then all of this is happening. It's powerful, but it is not. It's really just communicating to the to people who opt into the bubble. And then Facebook comes on the scene and becomes the dominant news platform for a majority of Americans around 2014, and is now spreading right-wing propaganda to people who are not opting into it. It is just because they happen to follow people who may belong to it. They may be friends with certain people outside of their network. And we now live in a world where the dominant messaging, political messaging on Facebook is overwhelmingly right-wing message. Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Fox News. Uh, and these are some stats that should alarm everyone about the future of democracy. 70% of adults over the age of 18 in the United States are on Facebook. Half of those people go to the site more than once a day. 40% of the 70% on Facebook consider it a major source of news. And it has become this massive weapon that has taken, that has uh, metastasized right-wing propaganda and spread it all across the country. And the last piece I would say to it, and we can talk about this in greater detail if you like, is that all every single right-wing media entity that exists out there, whether it's Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, Fox News, The Federalist, The Free Beacon, The Daily Caller, all were started with the funding from a Republican billionaire who viewed investments in media uh, not as investment as a business investment, but as a political investment to build up a weapon for the Republican Party, something that they would pay off and lower taxes or less regulation down the line. And we're at a point where the Romans have a massive megaphone that is now, in my opinion, the most powerful weapon in American politics. Who who are some of those uh, those donors? You know, it is, you say in your book, the the primary, the most powerful and influential ones are the Mercers, uh, Robert and Rebecca Mercer, who are, were Trump's biggest donors. They funded Breitbart and put Steve Bannon in charge of Breitbart. They've been behind a whole bunch of other efforts. There are the Wilkes brothers who are these uh, fracking billionaires from Texas. There's a man named Foster Freeze, who is a billionaire from Idaho or Wyoming, I think I remember he passed away recently. The Cokes, although it's only a fraction of the Cokes' overall political spending has been in media, but they've, put a ton, they've invested a ton in media. There is a, another Republican businessman who has uh, named Brian Timpone, who is funding uh, more than a thousand right-wing local news sites that exist under very innocuous names, uh, you know, that just happen to be primarily located in the battleground states or the states with big Senate races. And so there's a whole bunch of people. It's a lot of people that you hear about when you hear about the people who fund Republican super PACs. It's part of their political spending every year is to keep this megaphone up and running. Yeah. Um, so how does Trump, how does Trump and the MAGA world fit into this whole universe? And, um, uh, and, and the other thing is, can you sort of talk about how, um, um, how like the firearms industry, the evangelical Christians, the conservative organizations like the Federalist Society and the Claremont Institute, like how do they feed this megaphone, this beast that you're describing? Yeah. So the tr Trump really energized the entire 
effort because he spoke the language of right-wing media. He, in part, because he has an instinct for attention getting, and he also spent much of the Obama years on Fox News and Rush Limbaugh sort of like doing like his own personal like A-B testing about what got more attention for him. That's how he ended up doing the birth certificate stuff. And then, but he also was the first national Republican politician to really just say, the heck with the, the, with the national, the traditional media. I am not going to use them. I'm not going to care about them. I'm going to actively run against them. I'm going to turn my supporters against them. And I am going to lay hands on the right-wing media in a very aggressive way. And Trump, who I think is not necessarily a strategic human being, his communications instincts are in some ways quite self-destructive, but one thing he did incredibly well, one lesson that Democrats could learn from them is that he nurtured the right-wing media ecosystem. He did all of his interviews with them. If a like low-trafficked website wrote something that he thought advanced his narrative or conspiracy theory that helped him, he would use his Twitter account to elevate it. He would do interviews with these groups, driving traffic to them, giving them which would then give, give them incentive to do more pro-Trump stuff. If people wrote books that Trump thought was uh, helpful to him, he would tweet about them and trying to put them on the bestseller list, which would mean two things. One, the authors of those books would get more, more media attention, more media bookings. The books would be placed at, you know, on the table at Barnes and Noble or Borders or wherever the places that may or may not exist, your, lo your local bookstore. Um, it, but it would also tell publishers to, to buy more pro-Trump books. And so he nurtured this media environment and took it uh, to an entirely another level. The, all of the other groups have worked hand in hand with these entities for a very long time to get their message out. It is a dumping ground for opposition research on Democrats. It is a place to push conspiracy theories to take down bills or politicians. It is, they, they are allies, right? They, the right wing groups, whether it's the NRA, I mean, the NRA actually for a long time before they embezzled themselves largely out of business, had NRA TV. They had an entire media apparatus themselves that existed to scare people into buying more firearms because that was good for the firearms manufacturers who fund the NRA. Um, and, but they, like when, you know, Democrats have a meeting with stakeholders and they sit down and they, you know, they have Planned Parenthood there and labor unions and Swing Left and Indivisible and all of those groups. When the right wing has those meetings, it's like the NRA, it's, uh, you know, family focus, it's, you know, these abortion groups, but it's all, it's the Chamber of Commerce, but it's also right-wing media figures. They are part of their stakeholder coalition. And like Trump, like that's been happening for a long time. Trump took it to an entirely new level. Sure seems like it. Um, can we sort of switch a little bit to disinformation and political messaging? Because you, um, in your book, you talk about um, working on Tom Daschle's Senate campaign in 2004 um, where you sort of were confronted with the first disinformation campaign. I, I, you could tell us that, but I kind of want to hear how you use that lesson to, uh, to work in the Obama White House and then transfer it on to what you're seeing could be a counter to the disinform. I mean, the disinformation in a 2004 Senate campaign is on steroids now yeah. or beyond that. Yeah, yeah, I will. I will. I will not tell the whole Dashel story because it takes a, a lot of setup, and I know we got a lot of things to get to here. But the ba the short version is, Republicans use the internet, the very nascent internet, to spread conspiracy theories and disinformation about Tom Dashel. He lost a very close election, becoming the first Senate leader to lose uh, his seat in fifty years. <clears throat> disinformation is not the only reason he lost, but it is one reason he lost, and in that election. I was a communications, deputy campaign manager and communications director on that race. And I used the approach that had been the sort of the approach for, for every campaign prior when it confronted with sort of weird conspiracy theory, disinformation stuff is ignore it. Like you do not want to give it oxygen. You don't want to create the Streisand effect. You want to just, you don't want to give everyone reason to pay attention to it if they weren't paying attention to it already. Because in the days before the internet, there was really no, no way for it to spread at scale quickly, right? It would be whispered at water coolers. Maybe it happens around the dinner table. But once the candidate addresses it, then the media covers it. And so the candidate and the campaign never address it. So we ignored it. 
And despite our ignoring it and never talking about it, it it emerged the the conspiracy the conspiracy theory was that Tom Daschle had promised the Sioux tribes in South Dakota that if they delivered the vote for him, he would return the Black Hills of South Dakota to them. Something that obviously should happen because it was land stolen from them, but not something the Senate Majority Leader can do on his own. Um, and nor had he made such a promise. Um, but that really spread like wildfire and it started coming up in our focus groups. Um, so the lesson I took from that is you have to you have to attack these things right away. You have to attack them aggressively. You have to take them on. And you have to specifically give your supporters the ability, the tools and the information they need to push back when they get them, right? In the 2008 Obama campaign, that was rumors that Obama was born in Kenya or educated in a madrasa or was Muslim, not that that should be a problem, but it was, it did spread like wildfire in that campaign. And, you know, we were dealing with email forwards back then, people just forwarding these things on over to each other. And so we were giving our supporters copies of Obama's birth certificate to send back and actual factual information or links to articles about Obama's time in the, you know, in the UCC church in Chicago, all of those things, but it was really to take it on. And it was a periodic firefighting back then. It was something you just that popped up every once in a while, just a handful of times in that campaign. By the time I got to the White House, it got worse. And by the time you got to the 2016 election, it was so out of control that it that Democrats across the board were unprepared for it. Every day you were dealing with the, these fake news stories, not to steal Trump's term, but that Hillary Clinton had been endorsed by ISIS, that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump that the, you know, the FBI agent working on the Hillary Clinton email investigation mysteriously winds up dead in his apartment. None of those things are true, but they did spread like wildfire. They spread like wildfire on Facebook. And even the, the, the barometer that, that the Clinton campaign and others were using was it's not getting any attention in the press. Therefore, no one's hearing about it. But there's this entire subterranean internet world where it is popping up and it is mattering. And you have to take all of these things on all the time in very, very aggressive ways, or you're going to constantly, it is a very painful, very annoying, but necessary game of whack-a-mole now. Oh, it's, it's, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I'm getting, uh, one thing I do want to ask you about is how are we doing, uh, and by we, I mean, like the pro-democracy, very large coalition, how are we doing, including the more progressive media or the, the media that's telling the truth, how are we doing combating the big lie? I mean, it doesn't feel like we're doing great. So tell us what you're seeing. What have we done well? What have we not done well? And we have to, we're going to combat it. We're going to combat the big lie for years to come, clearly. Well, I think it's not fair to judge how we are doing, how we define broadly are doing to combat the big lie, because we don't have the tools to do it. We are just so massively outgunned on the right. There is no short-term solution here. It requires like the hard work of building up a progressive megaphone to compete. And we should be realistic that, you know, I think we did a lot of correct things, pushing back against Barack Obama's, the, the birther rumors against Barack Obama. But by the time when he left office, more than half half of Republicans still believed, or at least still told pollsters, that he was born in Kenya and therefore an illegitimate president. Eight years into his presidency, multiple birth certificates released. I mean, in a, despite the fact that there was a birth announcement in the local Honolulu paper the day after he was born, announcing his birth, which would, be, which would mean that the conspiracy to lie about it would require time travel. So, like, but people still believe that, and there is an element of motivated reasoning in this. A lot of people tell pollsters things, not because they really believe them, because they want to be someone who tells pollsters that they believe those things, because they don't want to live in America where Donald Trump lost legitimately, right? And, you know, you, you can get some similar things from Democrats about Russian interference, like, but what we had, so we, the way to ultimately, the way I try to measure our progress are, are more Democrats focused on fighting back against disinformation aggressively? Yes, they are. Are more people in the funding community willing to invest in progressive media? Yes, there are more now. When I, I have been beating this drum slash banging my head against the wall about it since 2017, I made the rounds with all the big donors, all, you know, there are all these meetings after the 16 election, business people, tech people, 
Obama campaign people, Clinton campaign people. I went to all the meetings and everyone's like, well, how do like, how did this happen? How do we solve this problem? And we looked at the landscape of the Democratic Party. And to be fair, there were a lot of holes that needed to be filled, right? We had a data problem. We had a tech problem. We had a party infrastructure problem. We had to build and scale new organizations to, to sort of account for the massive surge in volunteer interest. We had to all, all these people who want to run. We had to train. There are all these places where people put their time and money. One place where people were unwilling or uninterested in putting their time and money was investing in progressive content, progressive media. That has changed since 2020. Is it enough? No. Is it happening fast enough? No. But there, are, like we have, we ha we have come a long way in a short time, and so the building blocks are there. There's more work to do, and I hope that you know if that we don't need Trump's constant presence on the national scene to people get people to continue to invest in it. Because I think this is a problem that's much bigger than Donald Trump. He just highlighted it for us in very stark ways. Yeah, uh, it's years, it's years in the making, it's going to be years in the undoing. I'm going to guess. Um, yes. Yes, okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, Dan, getting some questions about um, democratic messaging and um, some frustration. <laughs> I'll just let you know. Yes, um, yes. I'm, fam I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. So, um, you know, I think some of us always say like, gosh, the GOP just seems so in line and the Democrats are a mess and all that stuff. But um, what do you, what would you say would be the first step for Democrats to come together around a unified message? And what should the message be? And who should be the key messengers, do you think, ahead of the 2022 and 2024 election? So I, I just want to push back on the idea that the Republicans are great at messaging. What the Republicans have is a louder megaphone, right? They get to pick what we talk about in American politics a lot. Hunter Biden, border caravans, uh, some perceived fake gaffe from Kamala Harris. They, because they have the larger megaphone, they get to pick the topics. But on a day-to-day -day basis, like I would hesitate to ask, I would challenge anyone to identify one singularly good, broadly appealing Republican messenger, not named Liz Cheney, I guess, right? Who is like actually good. Kevin McCarthy looks like he woke up from a nap every day, every time you see him. The Mitch McConnell like is possibly the least human human who walked the face of the planet. He like does not, he, he's, he's basically is the Senate parliamentarian with marbles in his mouth when he speaks, like just super unappealing. I've seen focus groups revolt at the mere, at a mere picture of Mitch McConnell. Donald Trump obviously has some messaging chops, but he also has a tendency to focus on all the worst things at all the time, no discipline. And the Republicans have a bunch of people like Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, I mean, we can name them all, who are constantly saying insane things, oftentimes at white nationalist conferences. And the fact that they are still winning the messaging wars speaks more to their infrastructure than to the problems with the specific things that Democrats say. So I think the we can talk about what specifically Democrats should say and how they should say it. And I think, but there's two things I think are important about it, is that we have to figure out I often say the Democrats spend 99% of their time thinking about what to say and 1% of their time about how to get people to hear it. Because right now we can, we can figure out the messaging thing on this call amongst all of us. We could nail it. We could probably put a poll in the field tomorrow. We can we could see that it works and it would not help us more than like one iota because no one's gonna hear what we're saying because we don't have the ability to get that message in front of them. So I wrote the book. I spend most of my time I think there's like a lot of people working on the thing to say. I work on it a lot sometimes with people, but not enough people working on the how to get people to hear it side. But you did ask about what we should say, so I will uh, try to address that question. I think we need to have a narrative, as a, Democrats need to have a narrative as a party that is largely about the stakes in this election. And it's gonna differ a little bit in emphasis and tone depending on who we're speaking to, but the larger story we're gonna, we need to tell is about what define what brings together January 6th, inflation, the, the Dobbs decision, what is happening in the states on book bans, laws attacking uh, trans youth, gays, gay people, LGBTQ plus community, the trans community, all of that. Like, how do we take all of that and bring it and bring it together into one story? And I think that story is about a radical extremist minority that will resort to election suppression, vote, vote theft, 
and violence to put in place a unpopular, unpopular, radical, extreme agenda that would put politicians and the government in charge of people's most personal decisions that will decide your healthcare decisions, whether you can have an abortion, what books you can read, what teachers can say, what companies can believe, what, uh, you know, what, who you should marry, who you should love, how you should love them. That is what this right wing is trying to do. That is the stakes of this election. And Democrats are the party who wants government to help you when you need help. Republicans want the government to tell you how you live your life and that that is the stakes in this election. And you can change that and how you talk to people. We're going to have a version of that. You know, there's, I think, a preamble we need with, with Democrats. We're trying to re-engage about what Biden and this Democratic Congress have accomplished, because we have to demonstrate to people, you know, all of us know people who we were on Zoom calls with in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, who voted, who donated, who were checked out of this election. They are tired, they're exhausted, they're disillusioned, and they're disappointed. And it's in part because we have not, we, people with platform, people like myself, have not done a good enough job of telling people all the good things that Joe Biden has done, that Everything that happened because we won the House in 18, we won the White House in November of 2020, and then we won those two Senate seats in Georgia, right? That is everything from the gun control bill, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, the most judges since by, confirmed by any president since Kennedy at this point in their presidency. It is a infrastructure bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's an American rescue plan that ensured that saved our economy, created millions of jobs and uh, ensured that every American who wanted access to a free vaccine could get one, sent tests to people's homes, and you know, you and you hopefully can top it off with this in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act passing the next couple of weeks. There's a very good story to tell. And I think if you want people to vote next time, you have to explain why their vote counted last time. Yeah, well said. I mean, bravo, standing O. You just gave us our social media for tomorrow. So thanks for that, Dan Pfeiffer. Um, I, so you've said it's time for Dems. I do love this. It's time for Dems to stop clutching their pearls and fight fire with fire. What do what do we mean by that? I mean, do we have to go low because Michelle Obama wants to stay high? No, I, what are we talking I about? Always, Dan? always, always do what Michelle Obama says. That is a rule in my life. <laughs> I, I have known her since 2007 and she's never steered me wrong. So I am definitely not saying don't do what Michelle Obama says. I would never say that. What I mean is that we, <laughs> our party, our donor community, our politicians have been too hesitant to embrace aggressive investments in usages of progressive media. I, we cannot have a disinformation campaign. We can have a propaganda campaign. We need media that is uplifting, not demoralizing. We have a different political calculus. You know, Fox Light would not work for us. We can't be, as I say sometimes, we can't be a lighter shade of orange. We have to be, but, but we've had this hesitancy that's like, well, Trump has a propaganda network or he has, he really nurtures the right wing media. So we can't do what they do. He's really mean to the press. So then if we sort of also embrace, you know, ideological media, then are we doing the same thing? No, none of that is true. We, we have to, politics is not, political communications is not public relations. It is information warfare. And we have to think of it with that mentality. And that's really what I want people to embrace is that every day, every Democrat has to get up and think about how we are going to win the information war. Because right now we are losing on a pretty regular basis. And so that just, it just requires a shift in mentality about how you think about it, which then will change what we say, when we say it, and how we say it. Okay, I'm so glad you're telling us. We, we Michelle Obama right here, got her. Okay, uh, we got a lot of questions about the midterms, Dan. So I kind of want to move away sure, from your book a little bit and let's talk about the midterms. So first of all, let's talk about Kansas. Um, clearly there was some great grassroots uh, work on the ground and some great messaging, even though that was a very confusing uh, ballot, the way it was asked. And there was some sort of uh, PAC money that came in hot called people, told them it like no meant yes and yes meant no. So tell us what you saw, um, lessons learned potentially from Kansas and how it could help um, help us in other states uh, for the midterms. Look, Donald Trump won Kansas by 15 points in 2020. It is a, despite the presence of a, of a Democratic governor, it is a thoroughly Republican state. And this 
this ballot measure, the, the pro-choice side of this confusing ballot measure is going to prevail by about 20 points. That is a 30-point swing. It is a huge deal. It tells us a couple of things. It says that the initial predictions about the Roe decision being a way to mobilize a Democratic coalition seem to be accurate. That people, it got people engaged. It shows that all of the passion is on the pro-access to abortion side. And it shows that if you focus on it and you don't hide from it, that you can prevail. Now, we, there should be some cautionary notes here, which is just be progressive Democratic issues tend to outperform Democrats because they are operating without a party label. A Republican who is pro-choice maybe can much easier vote for the pro-choice side of this because it's singular on this issue than to vote for a Democrat who is also pro-choice, who may be, they may disagree with on guns, taxes, you know, election legitimacy, Trump or whatever else. You know, like in Florida in 2020, there was a measure to raise the minimum wage that received 60% of the vote, which outperformed Joe Biden by like 14 points, I think, who was running against someone who has said that when a minimum wage shouldn't exist. And so what it tells me is that the passion is on our side. There is an opportunity here. We're going to have to figure out how to make the individual candidate votes, particularly in House races, which are often sort of times generic Republican versus Democrat, because there's, you know, they don't know enough about the candidates to feel like an up or down vote on access to abortion and healthcare. And I think that's what we have to, to think about and, and work on. And I think there's an ad that the DNC put out that is generally an actually a terrible ad, but it does make the point that if Republicans get control, it will, they will pass a nationwide abortion ban, which is going to be really important because a lot of the states, you know, like California is a state where control of the House could be easily be decided. We have a number of races here. There are actually some Republican seats we can flip because of redistricting, but you need Democrats in California to think that their access to reproductive services is at risk as well, right? If it worked in Kansas, it was very personal. It's either going to pass or fail. You're either going to, this is either going to become a state where abortion is banned or you're not, right? That like that urgency may not exist in, in blue states unless we make it so. New York's another instance where that is the case, where we have some races. Virginia, another one where it is currently not banned and it's unlikely to be because of control of the state legislature, but we have house races that are like Elaine Luria that are very, we really have to worry about. And so there is like we have to we have to use it to raise urgency and and sort of explaining what happens if the Republicans. Well, there's two sides of that coin, right? If the Republicans get control, they will uh, ban, pass a nationwide abortion ban. And if Democrats get 52 Senate seats and keep the House, then we could codify Roe, protect contraception, protect marriage equality, et cetera. Yes, if we uh, let's let's travel to Arizona because that was another big day. Yes. And unlike Georgia, it seemed like the election deniers uh, really had a great night. So can you tell us uh, sort of what you see in Arizona um, and what it portends potentially for the Democratic candidates running against some of these, uh, some of these uh, election deniers and how we could pretend, I do want to talk about the January 6th committee too. Yeah. So I, I know we're at, I know we're getting close to time. I'll, I'll do, I'll do this one very fast, I promise. Great. Yeah. So short version okay. in Arizona is a very, very, very closely divided state. This could go either way, all up and down the ballot. There's a world in which Democrats could sweep. Mark Kelly could get reelected. Katie Hobbs could win the governorship, particularly if Kari Lake perseveres, which it seems like she probably in, and, and seems like she will win. And Reg, Reginald Boulding could beat Mark Fincham, who is the Republican nominee for Secretary of State, who's also a member of the Oath Keepers, which seems like it should be a Membership in a domestic terror organization should be a flag for electors, but it could also go the other way. It is a very, very tough state. So we have opportunities there, but nothing is in the bag. And so this could go very, very well. It could go very, very bad. And I think there should be real concern about the legitimacy of the election if you have a, a, a state of Arizona where, Kate, where Kari Lake is the governor and Mark Finch was the secretary of state. For sure. Um, what... Uh... Oh, sorry. I just lost my train of thought. But tell us, um, there are several questions in the chat about Democrats funding these far right election deniers and 
there's some very upset people who've come to Big Ten tonight to hear your thoughts on that strategy because it really could blow up in our face. Uh, you know, what's his name, Mastriano, and PA yeah. comes to mind. I I think two things about this. I think it's a it, it's a dumb use of money. It is more. It is the the juice is not worth the squeeze in this situation. Like we. We are taking on all this water for having made moderate investments in these races and in allowing everyone to be mad at us for something that we're really playing no real role in. Doug Mastrano won by 23 points. There is just no way that $800,000 of ads from Josh Shapiro made him win that race by 23 points. Have you ever seen a Democratic ad? There's not, there are not $800,000 of Democratic ads that are shifting Republican primary 23 points. So it is a, like, we have so many things we have to fund that putting money on this is dumb. I just think it is, it is a mistake. I, the, in my mind, we are in, when especially when it comes to congressional candidates, the threat to democracy is Republican control. It doesn't matter which group, well, you know, whether it's the full-throated big lie believers, the wink and nod big lie believers who win those seats, the problem is Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy having the gavel and deciding how we certify the election in 2024. Whether that is Eric Greitens in Missouri in that Senate seat or Eric Schmidt in that Senate seat, we're going to end up with largely the same result. I just don't think Democrats should do it. I think it's a waste of money. And that we have spent like a month talking about this now. And for like this small amount of money, if you, like if you, I can find a lot, a lot better uses of $800,000 in this battleground state of Pennsylvania than running ads touting Doug Mastriano for a race he was already going to win. But I will, here's the thing I will say, if you, if you were going to defend the Democrats, and I am not defending the Democrats, let me be clear, but in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, there, if Peter, whose name I can't remember, Major, Major, uh, wins, that is a lean Republican race. If John Gibbs, the Republican MAGA candidate wins, that's a lean Democrat race. And Democrats invested some money. I don't think it's why. The reason the incumbent loss was because Donald Trump endorsed his opponent and campaigned against him. Um, but that's a seat we will probably win now and as opposed to one we might have lost. That's why, why they do it. I just think it's not, it's not, it's not worth the, all the har harassment, all the sort of angst this has caused among so many people for something that's going to have such a marginal, you know, to minimal impact on the results. Yeah. Um, can you tell us, you know, what are you thinking? Uh, what do you think of the January 6th committee hearings? What do you think it might do? Is it changing hearts and minds or um, all we need is a margin change of heart and mind? What, what yeah. are you thinking about it? I think, I think they've done a phenomenal job. They have gotten huge viewership for these things. The, the primetime hearings have drawn more viewers than the NBA finals games. So when you get a congressional hearing to get more people to watch it than a Steph Curry basketball game, that is an impressive feat. They have thought, and I, I've written about this recently in my newsletter, The Message Box, but they have uh, thought very... Uh, strategically about the use of Republican voices to persuade Republicans. That's why you see Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger do much of the talking. It's why you have most of the cases made with videos from card carrying members of MAGA Nation like Bill Barr or Jason Miller or the, or the Trump children or Jared Kushner. They are not, it's not Adam Schiff, and I do love Adam Schiff, it's not Adam, we're, we're not gonna persuade moderate Republicans or you know, persuadable Trump 2020 Trump voters that the election was not stolen with the words of Democratic Congress people, her stories on CNN. We're going to persuade them with Trump aides, Fox News personalities saying the election was not stolen, or Trump knew the election was not stolen, or Trump knew what he was doing was illegal. And so using those trusted voices is incredibly impactful. We've seen in polling that now two in 10 Republicans think Donald Trump should be charged with a crime. That's a huge deal. That is a huge deal. Now, some of them may vote for him anyway if he runs again, but we don't have to change 50% of voters, Republicans, or 15%. We change 5% of voters. That goes from an election we barely won to a landslide for us. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I've not seen that poll. Um, okay, so we've got to end on some hope, Dan, because your last, the whole last part of your book is is really like what we can do. And, uh, you know, and all of us at Big Ten who come and are here tonight really do want to be proactive and do something positive for the midterms and 2024. So give us some hope and um, give us some marching orders, please. Sure. Well, I mean, here's the hope, right? Like this is a tough political environment, no doubt. No one's going to tell you otherwise. It has definitely improved in recent months. Gas prices have gone down for 50 straight days. 
the generic ballot has shown movement to Democrats ever since the decision in the Dobbs case. And so the result in Kansas should give people hope. And the thing about it is, it's just it's like a simple math problem, which is there, all of the states are going to decide to control the Senate and the key governance races are in states that Joe Biden won. We know that there is a pro-democracy, pro-truth, anti-insurrection, anti-MAGA majority in those states. And all we have to do is turn them out. That's it. There is that we don't have to get a bunch of people to take their MAGA hats off. We don't have to like go get a bunch of Tucker Carlson viewers to stop believing the big lie. We just have to turn out the majority of Americans, the growing majority of Americans, who it is a growing, progressive, diverse majority of Americans. We just have to get them to vote. And if we do that, we will win. That is, it is that simple. Now it's simpler in conception than execution but we can absolutely do it. There have been midterm elections where Democrats have no shot. In 2014, we had no shot. It was an election that took place in Senate races, almost entirely in states that Barack Obama had lost to Mitt Romney in 2012, this, in many cases by double digits. In the Senate races in 2018, most of them took place in states Donald Trump won by 20 points. Here, this is happening in a place where we have the majority of the voters. We just have to go get them. That's what it is. We have to, it's volunteering, it's investing in these candidates, it is convincing the people in our lives, right? Like we don't, we all know every person has on every person has on average about a hundred, more than a hundred people in their social networks, right? Whether that is the contacts in their phone, Facebook friends, Instagram followers, people on Twitter, TikTok, wherever you communicate with people, your alumni networks, whatever it is. We know people who live in these states. We know people who know people who live in these states. We can, you know, organize. Every interaction is an organizing opportunity. And so it's just something that an organizer told me in Iowa many, many years ago. And I think it is very true. And we should think about our own lives that way, right? Like all the volunteering through Swing Left or whatever group you do where you're doing like text banking or phone banking, that's also great. But also like we can take care of our own houses too because every single vote matters. All right, that sounds great. And also, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out in your book is just really using that network. If you're on social media, anything that you can do to sort of amplify, like we should all go in social media and talk about your book and say yeah. something about your book, right? Because well, you don't. No, you know what? You don't have to do no. it with my book. But there, there is a. I will say one thing for folks who are looking for a program to sort of um, operationalize that idea of sharing on social media is the DNC has started a new program where they'll have you download an app and they will give you content that, you know, charts, graphs, videos that you can send to uh, people in your network. There are some Senate campaigns, uh, including the Fetterman campaign that has a similar operation where you, there are, they have a social media squad that it, or a truth brigade and things like that to give you the tools to push back. And so there, you don't have to do it all on your own. There are some people who will help you. Okay. Yeah. We'd love to see that. That'd be great. Um, okay. Before I let you go, I have, I have two, three rapid fire questions for you. Okay? Okay. 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 I know you have little children, but besides your book, what book would you recommend uh, the big tent community to read? Uh, I'm sure maybe many of you have read this book because it's sold a lot of copies, but is why we did it by Tim Miller. Tim Miller oh, yeah. is a uh, former Republican operative who worked for Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, uh, throughout the Republican, John McCain, throughout the Republican Party, who turned hardest anti-Trump. Um, and he, it's a really incredible book about politics. But what he really does is try to explain why, you know, the thing, what in Republican culture allowed so many Republicans to support Trump, professional Republicans, and why so many of his friends and former colleagues who he knows personally opposed Trump big time in 2016 have come around and are now you know, full-throated MAGA members. And I think it's a good way of understanding the uh, political culture, the other side, and some views about how you can maybe, we can maybe win some of those people back. Okay, why we did it. Uh, okay, so what about besides Pod Save America, what's your favorite podcast? I will, you know, this is a tough one because I do a, a lot of my podcast listening that is not Pod Save America is um, not political. A lot of sports podcasts. Good for you. <laughs> to me, the podcast, but I am a but two. I'll give you two podcasts. I think Ezra Klein's podcast is um, absolutely, I think, essential listening. You know, it's varies by who the conversation is, by what topics you're interested in. But it's, I've known Ezra for a very long time. He's incredibly smart. Um, he did a series 
uh, over the last you know six months or a year because time has no meaning about where he there was about it's called like the new right and he talked to a bunch of people who were pre who have become uh, who help explain like the emerging right wing in this country you know one is with the Rayhan Salam who's the head of the Hoover Institute there's another one with a Notre Dame professor who's a sort of become very rabid and right wing they're very useful conversations to maybe understand how the other side is thinking and then just if you want a fun podcast that will make you smarter. It's Strict Scrutiny, which is uh, Crooked Media, which as Patsy America does, which is three incredibly funny, incredibly brilliant uh, women law professors talking about the courts and the law. Um, they are fabulous. You, if you watch MSNBC, you probably know Melissa Murray is one of them, Leah Littman, who sometimes is MSNBC, and Kate Shaw, who is an ABC uh, legal correspondent. But they're very funny and very smart, and it's always a good listen. Oh, great. Okay, thank you. We'll definitely put that on our website too. I do wanted to share with you one, um, Lenny Glenn sent in a good message um, that I just wanted to share with you uh, that, you know, this is something that maybe we'll have to do a meme of or something. If Republicans can't take control, they will take away your freedom to control your own pregnancy. They will take away your social security, your Medicare. And if they can get away with it, they will take away your vote. Perfect. That's a good, that's great messaging. It's pretty good, right? Get Lenny an office in the DNC. All right, Lenny. Lenny, get on it, will you? Um, okay, so Dan, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much. It was such a privilege to talk to you. I'm so honored. Um, and if you haven't bought a copy of Battling the Big Lie, everyone run to your local bookstore and pick it up and read it. It is a page turner. And you think you know it, but you actually don't. So go ahead and get it. Um, please make sure that you subscribe to Dan's newsletter on Substack, the message box. It's outstanding. And listen to uh, Pod Save America, one of our favorite podcasts. So um, Dan, thank you so much. And everyone will get a recap of this. So um, make sure you share it with friends and family. You've really helped break down so many, um, you know, swirling issues for the big tent community. And I just want to remind everybody, sign up for our newsletter. Check out our website and remember Cecile Richards is coming on September 14th, Cianti Stewart-Reed on September 20th, and on September 28th, David Pepper. So please come back and join the tent. Um, keep working. We got to save the democracy. And Dan, thank you so much for all you do, for writing the book, and for just uh, making sure we're all talking the same talk and walking the same walk, and we're going to get it done. Well, thank you guys so much. This was fun. Thank you very much. Night, everybody. Stay well.